the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We are at episode 300 and 378, I believe. Wow, nice. I'm Paul Spain and two guests with me in the studio today. Um, first up, Nicole Ferguson. Thank you for joining Hi. us, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Great to have you here. Um, and Ingrid Cronin-Knight. Yeah, it's fantastic to be here. Congratulations on bringing up over 350. It's amazing. Thank you. Now, maybe, um, Nicole, we could just start with you in terms of a, a little intro. Where do you fit into this world of uh, tech in New Zealand? Well, well I, um, people ask me that a lot. How did you get to be the chief executive of Reance? And um, I always tell people it was a bit of a happy accident that I ended up in tech. Uh, my, my background is in accounting and law, and I the next thing I say is, don't hold that against me. Um, and so I've been working with Rians for almost 10 years and two and a half of them now in the CE role. Um, and, you know, just a really interesting space to be in. We're, we're a crown-owned company. We're serving university, CRI and Polytech members, so the academic and research space. Um, and we're operating in this, you know, telecommunications um, industry and environment. And with the government policy over the top, that creates a really interesting niche to be in. So, yeah, I like complex little um, environments and ecosystems to, to work through. So that's what keeps me interested. That's great. And Ingrid, you're at MYOB. I am, quite passionately at MYOB. So we um, we obviously provide accounting and payroll software for small businesses and uh, accountants. Uh, and so I look after the team that do sales and marketing and operations for small business and the accounting team. I've been there for just over um, uh, 19 months. And then before that, I was at Chorus for four and a half years. And before that, at uh, Spark Digital for 11 years. So and came through ISPs and then even... Um, uh, when they first rolled out cable in Australia, uh, had a role to play in that as well. So, uh, yeah, been in the industry for a good couple of decades, actually. Yeah, great. Mm. Oh, that's good. Well, I'm looking forward to both of your uh, opinions as we you know chat through things uh, today. And look, it's it's great to have somebody from MYB on the show. We've had you know Rod Drury on uh, a number of times from the zero side, and yeah, I guess you know some of us sort of thought, well. You know, MYB, they've been disrupted, their, their, their days are over. But uh, certainly seen a sort of lot more activity in, uh, in terms of interactions uh, from fearing people at MYOB over the last year or two. Yeah, there's and no so doubt that um, we were competitively disrupted by zero, and uh, I think competition makes you better. And I can absolutely say that what the steps we've made in that, in that period of time have, have really been quite compelling, actually, uh, for what we can do for our clients. But I can talk about that a bit more through the, through the program. Yeah, great. Well, let's jump in. Now, first of all, I thought um, we should have a little bit of a chat about robots because uh, there was a, a little bit of curiousness uh, when you were both in the room and looking across at uh, this chap here, um, Mechanoid, who's well, he's, um, <laughs> not your usual sort of um, um, yeah, member of the family. Um, he's an unusual looking character and uh, we fired him up and um, tried to have some conversations <laughs> with him before uh, which was a, a, an interesting experience shall we say um, and uh, I was asked whether I'd actually put him together now going back to my childhood I always wanted to have some Meccano and I'm like, I, I remember my dad saying yep you'll get I'm going to buy you some Meccano when you get to and I can't remember what age it was Um 
when I reached that age, I think McCann had probably gone out of business um, or there was some other reason why I wasn't able to get uh, a set of uh, Meccano. Um So I was quite pleased when um, Mechanoid got sent over and um, and I actually just found out the other day that there, amongst our family heirlooms, there was some old Meccano. So uh, apparently that's going to arrive at my doorstep in the next few days. <laughs> You're going to be able to innovate on this little robot here. Add a few, add a few bits, do yeah, That could be interesting. Sort of, uh, you know, Definitely modern, modern tech with a bit of old tech and we hack it together and see what we could do. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Looks yeah. cool, but didn't really function. That's the, the I think the, you know? the problem is the technology is moving so fast. Mm. We've got very high expectations of voice recognition and it's natural and language processing wasn't quite as uh, mm. as fast. So. No, no. Um, but in terms of something, you know, in terms of a, a project for uh, youngsters to sort of put together. Um, it's a pretty cool, it's pretty awesome cool concept. Yeah, and it did respond. We were just very disappointed that it didn't do the kung fu that was promised. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. And it actually gave us a few dance moves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which actually, to be fair, against uh, some of the guys in my uh, high school year, would have put them to shame. It so it wasn't too bad. Yeah, well, it's not too right. bad. And it actually, it reminded me of um, a toy that I bought for. Um, I've got a very young niece and nephew, and we bought a little uh, puppy. A little toy puppy um, for their for them for Christmas, and um, I had a confession the other day from um, the twins' dad that they've actually they've, they've put it away now because it started freaking them out. How? It, what did it do? So what it, it would. It would you turn it on and it would play some lovely music and then it would go come play with me and then it would move around the room and if you ignored it, it would then follow you around the room and keep saying come play with me and my. Um, my brother-in-law went down the hallway and into the room and this little puppy toy dog followed him around the corner, up the hallway and into his room. And he turned around and said, no, that's it. That's it. This thing is now creeping me out. We've got it. It's turned off. It's, it's been put in the, in the play box, never to be hopefully seen again because you, you pick it up and you look at it and you can see the little sensor in the front of it and it must be detecting movement and yes but you don't quite know what that is right is it a camera is exactly. it what you know and what's it doing and we've heard in the past about sort of cyber security challenges yep. with with you know internet These, of things type devices yeah, and kids gadgets and toys and so on so you know there's probably you know some probably some fair concerns there and until that market matures a little bit more. Cyber security, you know, uh, concerns are sort of addressed properly. Whereas at the moment, I think, yeah, probably it's fair to say that there's not a huge, massive amount of investment that goes into making these things secure. It's just Absolutely how do we get that product not. out to market as quick as, as, quick possible, as possible, as cheaply as possible, so we can, you know, have them in toy stores. Yeah. Um, I mean, you read all the warnings around Christmas last year about be careful about buying IoT-connected toys, you know, the cameras in them, they're listening, they're recording, you can, you know, the the issues with sharing that, that data if it gets compromised, or using them to bot attacks on the internet, you know, everything. And you sort of think, well, I bought one that wasn't connected, but it still can creep you out, even and, though it's and, got that little that little sensor in it. And what's yeah. it really doing? It only cost me twenty bucks. <laughs> what I love yeah. about it, though, what's really cool is if you think about the age demographic, though. And um, my uh, my eleven uh, year old nephew, I put through Mind Lab. He lives in Australia and put him through a, a range of sort of robotics courses at, mm. at Mind Lab. And for them to come and make that and then get really interested, like, he was so proud of the dance music DJ thing that he made out of foil and something else. Yeah. And so I think that that for that age demographic where they're actually not necessarily playing games but actually building something and engaging with it, I think it's a fantastic 
a fantastic um, kind of yeah. king from yes, Canon. We're starting to see too, like three uh, D printing, like with in schools. And the little projects that they have, you know, designing and making their own planter boxes that they 3D print and sort of just getting in, totally engaged in the concept of technology that's not necessarily requiring you to code, but it's, it's showing you all the different ways you can apply it. I think that does, a, does quite a bit for generating that level of interest. I think at, in the primary and secondary school age. I agree. Like he came home with some, you know, 3D printed activity and it was really cool to see the byproduct and so he takes it home. Yeah. And then they had, um, um, you yeah, know, really cheap um, VR masks that they made out of cardboard. And it's just really, really cool some of the stuff that you can engage the kids in that gets them into tech. Yeah, definitely. Way cooler when I, than when I was a kid. And I like to think that wasn't that long ago, although, the, yeah, if you count back to the years to secondary school now, it gets quite scary. <laughs> But my, I just bought a new car, actually, and so my robot at the moment is um, helping with lane assist where it won't let you change lanes unless you indicate. It's kind of interesting when the, the, the car, um, and you've got electronic park brakes now and a whole heap of other things that you, you didn't have before. Like my, my son, who's only two years old, there's no way he'll ever need to have a driver's licence because uh, it'll be driverless cars by the time he, he, mm. he learns it. So What are you, what are you driving? Uh, Peugeot 3008. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And... Um, that that lane assist, I guess if that was too overbearing, it could could be a bit of a problem, right? As well as just you know, if it followed the rules, you know, fully, you know, you're supposed to what indicate for. Oh, now this is going back to, um, is it a second and a half? <laughs> Three seconds. Oh, three, seconds. Three, three seconds. Three seconds. Where am I getting a second and a half? Oh, we maybe I did the different road I'm, code. I'm, no, no, it is three seconds. You're you're right. And I did pass my uh, defensive driving course with flying colours after being kept back in class um, after explaining some of my um, my uh, driving habits of the time. But I'm much um, a safer driver now. Um, but, yeah, you can imagine if it forced you to do it for three seconds and you're actually trying to avoid something, that wouldn't be, uh, wouldn't be ideal. Yeah, they can't, and I guess when you get to driverless cars and liability becomes an issue, then, then I think you raise a good point in that they might start forcing and enacting um, compliance in line with the, the road code, which, um, which would be yeah, just interesting to see how that plays out. It sounds mm. like a nightmare, actually. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, except for those of us who drive perfectly and follow all the rules perfectly, you know, right now, but there's some so other you, drivers. You wait I've, at your giveaway sign I've, for three I've seconds. I've seen yeah. on, the, on the road who, you know, oh. may, maybe don't drive. Don't as get well me as started on indicating at roundabouts. Infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, robots, and, and I guess the, the other reason that we brought up robots is we wanted to talk about this uh, bur- 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 burger flipping uh, robot that's been in the news over the last uh, few days. And uh, had gone into a uh, a restaurant in uh, in, in California. Uh, it's called Flippy, built by um, Miso Robotics, and uh, be referred to as the world's first autonomous robotic kitchen assistant. Um, I think there have been other sort of you know robots and in, in, in kitchens, and you know even if you you look back at uh, things like you know even. Uh, you know, dishwashing machines and microwaves are sort of somewhat robotic type mm-hmm. devices that should been around for a, a long time. Um, but the idea of something that can actually, um, you know, do, do that meal, meal uh, preparation and, and cooking and so on sort of makes a bit of sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think um, it's really interesting. Um, if, you, if you thought there's actually ABC put out a website called Could a Robot Do My Job? And they indexed a whole heap of different um, businesses uh, yes. and and, uh, and and 
um, professions around that. And uh, one of the interesting things, like so we put it in, you put in a welder, and they reckon that 75% of a welder's job is going to be automated between now and 2030. Um, for accountants and bookkeepers, who is you know, some of our mm-hmm. prime core clients, um, they, uh, accountants was 28% and bookkeepers was tw- uh, 29%. Our CEO was only 7%, I think it was. Uh, so, oh, thank goodness they made the transition. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're safe. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, there might but, be a bit more competition for, uh, for our jobs in the future. <laughs> yeah. But there is interesting. What, what, do you, what do you do with that 30% time that's automated? And actually there was um, uh, another one that said actually uh, for accountants and bookkeepers anyway that um, – Twenty uh, percent, or, or basically two thirds of that, um, so will get replaced with new tasks that they weren't otherwise doing. So it's actually only if you think about it, you've got ten people in a firm, you're only losing one because actually there's still nine people doing the work. But uh, every industry is different. And like I think that um, so from a point of view of burger flipping, I actually uh, grew up uh, flipping burgers at McDonald's. Um, and worked at three different restaurants, and I think it's inevitable that our food and supply chain will, um, particularly in that fast food industry, will will get more and more automated. Um, I do, do think it poses some real issues uh, or considerations from a society perspective, as you have school leavers and what they do. You know, what, what's the what's the jobs that they actually get um, into the workforce for? I think that would mm. be kind of interesting. But um, but I think on, in the fast food, you, there will be absolutely more food assembly. Whether it's flipping burgers, I'm not sure that's the most efficient. You know, robot use of time, but um, but we'll see as it, it sort of plays out. Yeah, well, we've had a few conversations earlier about food delivery. You know, the logistics around that when it comes to technology, and that links really nicely into the you know the driver's car and, and where that technology is actually going. So, you know, we order Uber Eats or Deliver Easy, and you know that turns up for you at a at a time that might be convenient to you. But how does how does that translate um, when? All of the that roading infrastructure is I'm, going to change. I'm a bit of a fan of Uber Eats, I've got to say. It's uh, <laughs> very convenient when you really need it, um, or you get home and you're quite tired and you've got to sort dinner out. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I can absolutely see that uh, that if you can automate the development of the food, you might look at actually uh, where you actually place your. Um, uh, restaurants because they're no longer n- required to be near foot traffic. They could just be near where you could actually supply within a, a big population within ten minute delivery. And like with Domino's, they're going for drones. And we'll see where that one goes. But um, yeah. I think it's really interesting how it can actually automate that that particular industry. And I think it's a reality that robots will have a role to play in automating out um, those sort of non thinking, non critical thinking tasks. Yeah, I mean it's it's hard to imagine. You know, quite where we might get with that automation if we're looking, you know, especially if you start trying to look decades out, like how different would a kitchen environment be when the, you know, the cost of, of robotics really, you know, keeps falling because they're getting mass produced and used for more and more and more things. Um, yeah, transportation systems going through, you know, huge changes and yeah, weighing up, well, you know, do do we need to cook ourselves? Is there a benefit of um, you know that sort of thing being done centrally, or could you have the automation in your own kitchen? And you know, in the, in the same way, we have varying appliances and so on in our kitchens already. Um, well, we're kind of leading the way in many cases in agri-tech, you know, and so you, we're talking about the end delivery of it just there. But if you think about the whole the whole production line of it, we've got, um, I think, quite a role to play in um, that level of innovation in the, in the world, actually. Um, but I think the, the food supply chain will be, definitely be interesting as you think about how do you mm-hmm. actually get um, – 
uh, it's from sourced and the productivity in farms, and then get it right through to the the person that needs it at the moment. And you're mm. seeing innovation in the business model with like my food bit, my food bag, and, and mm. there's a number of different ones that do that kind of thing. So it'll be inter- really interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, and you know, you certainly see. Um, I think what was it? it was a Blue Apron was sort of the first one out of the US that I think started that model that you know my food bag, uh, you know, continued on with here here in the New Zealand in New Zealand in the same way that sort of you know Trade Me came in and, and got in and did something before uh, eBay were able to kind of own the market here. Although um, from what I've heard, it sounds like Blue Apron are, are now struggling in the US market because there's so many other competitors yeah, that have, that have come in and uh, even Amazon on a playing in that in that space so um you know once you get quite a lot of comp- competition then the way it sort of looked initially can actually change uh, quite a lot too and i guess with food there's those aspects around enjoying doing food preparation and and you know cooking together doing that sort of thing uh, with family uh versus just i need a meal type situations so um, yeah, I'm kind of curious how how all that will sort of play out, and um, yeah, the cult, sort of cultural change aspects. If it's all able to be automated and, and uh, handed over, will we want to do that? In the same way, I think you know a lot of car enthusiasts and and the, the uh, car companies sort of talk about the fact that well, people really love love driving their vehicles, and you know, surely this automation thing will never take off because we love driving so much, but. You know, I think there are, there are aspects of you know fun fun parts of maybe um, driving uh, for for some of us, um, but I, I think, think that for, food, for, that for, joint food connection and collaboration, and if you always think about. Um, there's actually a great quote from Beethoven, which was around, you can always tell if someone's got a good heart because they make great soup. But it was just, you know, if you think about your um, your grandparents and those recipes that they produced and how that, that comes down through the line, the love that goes into creating that f- food and then you mm. automate all that, then, um, I, look, I have yeah, this fear that you'll, you'll lose that, that joy and that connection that comes with that um, mm. food. But at the same time, I'm very busy and there's definitely times in my yeah. life where it is entirely inconvenient to have something that's just produced and you know it's um, fresh and uh, of the calorie portion that you want and it's got all the things you want in it and it tastes great. And, and so do I care that it's been yeah. automatically produced? Not necessarily. So there's d- those different kind of elements that you need to serve. Yeah, mm. and I think it's creating a, a, a different view of what the premium end of the market will look like. Just just like we, we have these discussions about the fact that all your meat can be grown in the lab now. Mm. You know, and New Zealand's looking at what's our play given the agricultural base of our economy in, in that, how threatened are we by that? And I think, I'm sure a lot of countries are thinking, well, you know, there will still be a place for the real thing, um, but how big is that premium market going to be? And I think it, it'll be the same with the preparation of food. Well, going to a restaurant where that's actually handcrafted by a, by a chef, that's going to be a different premium experience than the McDonald's burger that is fully automated and how far up that premium chain that kind of experience might go. Yeah, it's an interesting thought. And, you know, I guess this could also be, be part of the picture for, um, you know, dealing with, 
some of the, the the challenges that we have with poverty as well, because there's mm-hmm. you know the part of it is access to food, and then it's you know food preparation and so on. All of the, those things sort of probably link link together, together. to some some degree. But right. there'll be I guess yeah, you, the other the other element is your health insurance. You know, you could go uh, well if you can guarantee that you're eating this kind of mm. well uh, of this kind of level, and then uh, your premiums are lower because they're guaranteed. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, yeah. Disclose if you smoke. Disclose if you exercise. Disclose which, well, which yeah. nutritional regime with, well, that you might be wearables. on. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I think to your point, poverty is an issue in New Zealand, and, and if we could use this to help that, then that would be a great outcome. Mm. Mm. Well, you know, it certainly it certainly seems that um, you yeah, know often you know fast food is 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 cheaper at the moment, and if you could sort of balance that up with. Um, yeah, lower cost food, but not necessarily lower quality or unhealthier food. Then there could be some some positive outcomes here. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's probably lots that we could sort of continue you know, on. <laughs> imagine sort of thinking about, and you know, yeah, if you didn't have to have the the same structures as we do today for yeah places where food mm. comes from, you know, could could things be spread around and maybe even smaller spaces if it was all automated a little bit like we've got ATMs today you just you know hole in the wall that actually preps your food and sells it to you and generates it for you on the spot and all sorts of others but we might save save any further discussion for another episode otherwise we won't won't get through um, all the other things that we wanted to talk about um one uh, one thing that we've known about for a little while, but it hits this week, is uh, Two Degrees is shutting down their 2G network this week. So um, for any uh, listeners, uh, probably not too many of our uh, direct listeners, but if you've got family members with old um, or really basic uh, 2G phones that are on, um, on the Two Degrees network, then um, just be aware that those aren't going to work too well um, from Friday anyway. What I love about New Zealand is that we um, are small enough where we can actually uh, manage the life cycle of that technology and we're not hell-bent on yeah. keeping it. It does obviously impact people that do have those phones that they purchased probably 15 years ago, I guess, was when we were on to, uh, I can't even remember when, <laughs> yeah. it, um, when the 3G first came out. But um, but uh, it's a good point. But uh, I do like that New Zealand is, is small enough and nimble enough to evolve with new technology and, and roll out new networks. Yeah, well, I think there's probably a few challenges with turning off 2G, um, but it's yeah, it's Vodafone that are going to take longer to turn off their 2G, and in the meantime, I think they're sort of slowly they're reducing um, you know how how much 2G capability they have, but there are there are things like alarms that businesses and homes have that rely on the 2G or GPRS sort of network to communicate and. And other things, so um, yeah, there will be there'll be some impact, but um, for for two degrees, I don't imagine it will be it'll be too much. It's it's probably uh, more those that are at a reliant for you know certain devices, and it may be um, uh, yeah power connections and, and homes that sort of feed back data over 2G and, and so It wasn't um, also like doctor's pages like back in, you know, when you're on um, on leave. So there are, there are absolutely use cases where it's critical and uh, until you can get the reliability in the new networks, you've got to keep some of those things. But um, but uh, it is, I, I do, I remember going to a conference in the States though and um, this is probably about 16, 17 years ago and used, we were, I ran a course in a division in um, Spark and um, where we sold contact centre software and over there they were like, I've got a contact centre with 13,500 people and eight sites and they just could never close anything down because it was just too big. At least we have the um, the size and scale where we can actually move reasonably 
quickly and solve these problems. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, certainly one of the one of the benefits of smaller organisations. That's partly why I like working with sort of small organisations because they don't have to be sort of tied back by too much old technology. You can use the latest and greatest stuff, and you're not you know you don't have too many um, yeah things that will that will stop that happening. But as organisations get bigger and bigger, you've got more and more legacy challenges, challenges to deal yeah. with. Yeah, yeah, it's harder and harder to get that that new project approved. To just can we just put this on the edge of our our own network and see how that goes? And I think that's one of the things that I love about where we're working at the moment you know a team of 30 people um, in our organization and you know part of our role is to make sure we continue to experiment with new technology so um, you know that means sometimes taking a risk on something and putting it in and we we eat our own dog food first right so we'll put it in our own office network before we will take it any further so there, there are huge opportunities from doing that and being able to like you say shut it down quickly at the, at the same time. Mm, yeah. Mm. That's a real interesting space. Now, there are a couple of, um, and we've been, uh, I guess, getting a little bit close to these AI assistants like Amazon Alexa and, um, you know, Google Home and so on. Um, and there were just a couple of uh, news stories in the, in the last uh, few days. One, and this is, I guess, part of the part of the learning as these technologies become a little bit more mainstream, but there are these reports of people saying that uh, um, their Amazon Echo was just <laughs> randomly laughing and, you know, quite freaking a few people out. They're home alone, and then suddenly it sounds like there's somebody in the room laughing. And um, I didn't get 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 round to um, trying this out. I meant to try it um, at home last night, and I I forgot. So I think I'm probably going to have to have uh, one of these set up at the office, so um, so we can test test things during the day as well. But um, it turns out that the the trigger phrase to get uh, an Amazon Echo to laugh um, was just Alexa, which is your you know wake word, and then laugh. So it was very short. And of course, anyone you know with any of these AI assistants, whether it's Siri and your iPhone or whatever, knows these things get triggered sometimes when you are not, you know, you're not trying to trigger them. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a couple of examples of that actually. I was in a couple of board meetings and. Um and Siri, for whatever reason, you know, the chair's talking, you're discussing big, big strategic issues, and then all of a sudden Siri pipes up going, I'm not sure what you said, Ingrid, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> at the most inopportune moment. Yeah. Uh, and so um, since then, I haven't actually embraced the home assist myself yet. Um, but I do know that we, ha- we have a lot of hack days at, at, at MYB where we um, get uh, Google and Amazon and t- with the latest technology, and we use and we try and com- um, use some of those components mm. on technology that, that we have there. And it's... Um, Definitely an evolving area and uh, quite challenging, like, you know, just like you say, those code words that you use, um, if you use them at the wrong time or in the wrong place, then uh, it has an absolute unintended consequence. And so they're now reprogramming it, as I understand it, so that um, it won't be um, uh, laughing inappropriately at different times. Uh, that's a good, good that's the hope, yeah. So yeah. a bit of a longer phrase. But I had exactly the same thing. Um, happen and you know I've usually got uh, often more than one one phone with me over I'm testing something new and you know a primary phone and so on and I had exactly that happen in a board meeting on Friday too and I had just had to go in and like 
you know, t- t- turn it off because it's not, uh, you know. It's I'm not, not sure what you said. It's yeah. not the, um, yeah, not the best. And as you say, that's it's Murphy, Murphy's Law jumping out and the, these things would come at the worst time or, you know, you're in some sort of a show or something Dang. somewhere and it's dead quiet uh, <laughs> or you think it's dead quiet, but, yeah, something triggers it. and uh, You've yeah. lent on the button in your pocket and all of a sudden she's away. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. well, it can be, can be that too, can't it? So, um Yes, I thought that that was um, that was interesting because we don't we don't like these things to be spooky, but I guess there is also that sort of spooky spooky acts that uh, the the spooky um, thing of well, if we do have these assistants, whether in our phones or whether they're the gadgets sort of scattered around our our houses, just to be sort of smart speakers, and maybe that's you know you have them just so you can listen to music in any mm. room and so on, but. Actually, you've got this thing that's kind of listening to you all the time, and if you kind of, if you put that together with some things that are going on in certain parts of the world and cybersecurity issues that we have and so on, you know, if you sort of draw conclusions as to how freaky that could get, it's actually, um, yeah, there's some, some some rather spooky connotations Patience. potentially, right? Yeah, I oh, definitely, and if I think about my. Um, little two-year-old son. Uh, like we have a Nest Cam at home, so we, you know, I can go on now and have a look in his bedroom. But um, before the, before that, uh, I would never have put that kind of technology in there. And we have mm. a personal policy where we don't post any photos of him on Facebook or any social media, just because you know other other people. A, it's his consent, and so it's mm. his mm. requirement. But B, you know, don't know what other people are, are going to do with do with that mm. content. We mm. do within private groups, but. Um, so I think that there is some real um, risk to personal security, and um, and I'm not sure that um, from a you know, I used to look after a security line of business in, in Spark, and I'm not sure that people uh, are the most um, security conscious when they open these things mm. up. So they they think about the the great um, flexibility and the actual use case it's designed for, but not what the risk is. Mm. Uh, and so yeah, the connotations that could be quite. Um, you know, terrifying, really. Yeah. You know, and you think about, um, I mean, we've been looking at uh, replacing our alarm system at home. So, you know, and I'm really keen to try and get something that's, that's, you know, not going to be the old traditional model of how you would alarm and, and secure your home. And, and then you, you look at it and, and if you've, you've got people engaging in those sort of home, home automation systems, those home security systems that are internet enabled, and you're not coming at it from a background where you, you think about security, you think about uh, how these things actually work. You know, you can buy home security systems that are wired into your home internet. You know, they're not 4G, they're all reliant on your broadband. You can see the chorus cable running up the fence of your house, you know. Mm. All that has to happen is someone snip that and and they're in, you know. Mm. You, won't be, you won't be seeing anything. So, you know, uh, how are we making sure that it, the buyers of this technology can be educated in the, in the different ways that um, your security might be compromised, whether it's physical or whether it's, you know, through the cameras that might be staring at your kids in their crib. You know, yeah. It's interesting you say that because I was uh, walking down Broadway once and I was just looking at all the um, all the different shops that had been f- cabled up with, uh, with fibre mm. and they had some flexi conduit just around it. It would take nothing for someone to come along with some snips and just snip them yeah. off. Please don't, and please don't suggest that. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but that's, well, you know, a, for, for people that haven't got a backup oh, or a yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But yeah, and I mean, there always has been, I guess, those sort of risks around the way phones are connected to homes and, you know, mm. and, and the like. 
I guess we now have the advantage of you're able to have a yeah, say a 4G connection as well as a, yeah. as a backup. But we're not quite there with a lot of this this technology yet in those regards. But that could be another selling point for you know, the likes of Spark who would prefer that people use the, their mobile network rather mm. than say you know Chorus or a fixed network is like you know hey it's much uh, it's much more reliable. Nobody can cut the cord for um, security, which is um, is is interesting. But I think there's there's a Still, quite a lot of maturity and 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 you know development. The whole area is going to go through a lot, a, a, in, yeah, in a lot of space, evolution. Right? Yeah. yeah, I think. I mean, the benefits of the cloud and um, uh, you know uh, are amazing that you can get out of there. So you wouldn't want to stop the productivity, but it's just something you need mm. to be conscious of to mm. ensure that you are managing both the physical security, like you say, mm. and, and also mm. the the cyber risk. Yeah, and I mean we've talked before on the show about the the Ring doorbells and their their sort of uh, product range, um, and also the uh, Nest cams and um, actually yeah just just I think it was you know a week or so back uh, Ring just got bought by Amazon so a bit of unknown around what will happen there and of course Nest are, are part of Google. Uh, now, so there's 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 oh, a lot of activity. I'm, I'm being encouraged to go down that path because I'm terrible with keys. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you can uh, automate the door entry and um, and not need to have any keys, and that's a, a good a good, yeah. a good thing as well. Well, all of those things definitely. There's some quite you know positive <laughs> aspects to it. One of the things I've noticed having having uh, you know been sent gear to test from both Nest and 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 Ring, um, yeah, among amongst others, but I've yeah tested a lot of their gear. Um, what I what I really like is the um, AI components that Nest have added to some of their cameras, but you, you pay a premium for those models at the moment. But I think that will become the norm um, because the motion sensing stuff you just always get false positives. And I, I had this um, you know over the last few days when I've been times I've been away and so on and there's alerts and you've got you know one time it's a nest one time it's the ring doorbell and they're you know they're picking up movement that you go and have a look and there's nobody there um but um you you probably both didn't notice as you walked in you came past a nest iq cam and so so yeah you got the the doorbell and then when you come in um, yeah, that one, and um, yeah, we can tag people once they're in, and then it then it knows. So every time Nicole turns up, get an alert on the phone saying, "Oh, Nicole's, Nicole's here Nicole's again." Here. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's actually yeah, it's that's there's there is still that spooky aspect, but also the good aspect. So you know, you have yeah. it smart enough to say, "Hey, look, there's there's somebody outside the back door of your house who I do not recognise, but it you know it's got the smarts and it and it knows it's a person and so on, rather than." And just these false alarms, which you end up just ignoring all the alerts, right? So yeah, information saturation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting. You take you take that principle and apply it to businesses. We're really um, in the middle of a pilot now where we've 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 linked AI and natural language processing together with a product that we're just working through called MYB Advisor. It's just for accountants and bookkeepers, but yep. basically it takes your SME da- your your business's data and um, and produces uh, insights and reports about what you should do around your business and cash flow and. Uh, and the AI itself is actually producing the the natural language interpretation of that, and whether or not mm. you should, you've had a strong month, or you should sell, or you know, and what the implications of it. And then, mm. um, 
our accountants can then add, and bookkeepers can then add some more advisory comments about if they want, and then they'll just produce that report which will go out to small business. And I think if you can um, use it and, and, and help the health of small business and educate people, mm-hmm. there's a really there's elements where AI assistance. This is like your um, AI for accountants and their assistance there. Yeah, you know, when you apply it in a, in a particular use case, it can really help the economy. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think, you know, if you think of that having a broader impact, if it actually works and it works really well, yeah, even as simple as those, you know, false alarms and so on, actually, if you take that out and suddenly this, the technology becomes useful and you're saving time and, and so on, the, you know, the flow on effects, if that's really broad across a lot of people, a lot of organisations, uh, can, can be really good. Well, yeah, and if you can, if you can develop insights of, you know, we're transacting in business every day, like, and off those transactions, you have know, insights and payments and payroll and your people, if you can develop, you know, really good insights that help business thrive or what to do on that, I think that's a fantastic outcome for the use of AI and natural language. Mm. And that's a, so going back to one of the comments you said right at the start about you know what percentage of a job is going to be automated and you know you're talking about accounting with like twenty twenty eight percent something yeah. some, you know it surprises me a little bit that it's not more when we're already at the stage where some of that advisory work that traditionally accountants would be doing and that's where they start to add their value is already um, you know being really supported by the, yeah. by the AI technologies that's the, that that's the innovation I think the bit that's um, getting automated is the transaction processing where you used to mm. key in receipts mm. or automatically code your transactions to different parts of the chart of accounts that's, that stuff is the bit that's just getting automated really quickly yeah. um, and actually New Zealand's been a real innovator in that we had a company Banklink um, yes. for a long time that used to do all that for, for companies for a long time and so um, uh, although you wouldn't have naturally necessarily caught it AI back then, it is ultimately um, you know rules and coding and, and automation of yeah. things. And so what we see in Australia is that there's a lot more bookkeepers because they weren't didn't have bank link. And so we've already seen that actually it's changed the dynamics of the industry in New Zealand yeah, a lot. quite yeah. differently off the back mm-hmm. of that. Yeah, but uh, but I think um, yeah I, I know you were talking about it from a from a home perspective. But when you can start applying it to business success, I think it's really quite inspiring. And I guess research success mm-hmm. would be as you know interesting as well. Well, well exactly. And I think. Um, one of the things that interests us a lot at Rians at the moment. Um, so, you know, we're not the recording institute. I probably have to start, start by saying that, and we're um, not the real estate institute either. You know, we, we specialise in um, providing a high performance network, so researchers can move their data around um, with their collaborators, not only in New Zealand but the collaborators globally. So, we're really focused on what's coming up next in and how our researchers are using technology and developing that technology. Um, to perform their own research mm. and so where that's going and what that future demand for data and data movement and, and the the end um, the suppliers they're using to do that how they're partnering with the commercial market all of that is changing so rapidly and so we're really interested in how um, they're applying those learning tools where what they're using to do that where they're developing what, what partners they're using and how that data is moving that's what keeps us up at night do you think that AI and like it's come out recently around biases and AI mm. um, and, and you start mm. using AI for research you know how do you think that um, the, the field of research which we really um, rely on as being the backbone of our kind of knowledge fabric how do you think that changes when researchers then start to use AI to do the research well it's I was at a conference the other day and, and even before you start looking at how AI starts in, uh, interacting with with research outcomes you know even the software that researchers are having to code themselves these days to analyze their data and whether that software 
itself your your research output the results of your research are normally subject to peer review they get put in journals you get uh, credit and um, recognition for that that links really closely to your funding as a researcher the code that you use to run that data and generate your results quite often isn't subject to that same peer, peer review. review. Yeah. So there have been cases, and um, I heard one at a conference earlier this year about where you know, someone had made a startling revelation about something to do with the species of this duck um, that had got a lot of prestige in that particular field, uh, but they he then had to post a retraction because he realised when they tried to rep- reproduce the results using this software that they weren't getting the same results and they found the bug so how do you encourage researchers to um, you know have that peer review of their code so that you can get that reproducibility and you and that's even before you know the results that we're thinking about with research before we even throw AI into the mix so it's a it's a really interesting field because researchers are having to be um, far more adept and upskilled in in terms of coding and and their own software tools mm. yeah I mean, you can imagine yeah going forward there might have to be a you know, standard ways that those things get uh, documented up and that yeah. you almost have to have an AI that's able to sort of audit researchers', researchers mm. code because otherwise that could be a, a crazy big job in and of itself. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, How do you peer yeah. review the peer reviewer who peer yeah. reviews <laughs> the AI? <laughs> <laughs> peer review is yeah. a huge thing in yeah. research, yeah. 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 The, yeah, the peer review, yeah, the peer review AI to do the peer mm. reviewing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. Interesting. Well, when, it, when it's, I mean, I think, I think one thing is that we want to protect the integrity of our knowledge. Indeed. And, uh, mm. and so research is fundamentally important to that. And, um, and so we, uh, we uh, it's interesting challenges for the industry to work yeah. that through. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. It's a um, really, um, really complex area and one that uh, isn't really subject to the same incentives that you get in the in the commercial world either. You know, researchers are rewarded based on their publication rate. That means writing papers and getting your research results out there. You know, they're not rewarded for share- resharing their data or even resharing their their um, software or ensuring the quality control over that. So, yeah, there are people that are really, really good at it. And um, and then and then there's Watson. <laughs> and then there's Watson. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think there's going to be plenty to talk about in this yeah. space for a long, long <laughs> time to come. There's, I mean, there's, there's so much, there's really so much more development, isn't there? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I, um, I sort of look forward to seeing some of the advances, and some of the advances are are a little bit, uh, a little bit scarier, but uh, we we'll just have to um, hang in there for that that journey, and hopefully things can steer in a. In a in a way that delivers mostly good outcomes. Yeah, I'm an optimist about the future. Yeah, I think that, um, but but does does need the right kind of um, oversight and ingenuity to lead it in the right direction. Mm. So, yeah. mm. Now um, we talk about gadgets on the show sometimes. I'm noticing your new one that you've got there. Um, so not just not just the robots in the room. Um, been playing around with Samsung's new um, S9, and that comes out this week. So there's the S9 and the S9 uh, Plus, and yeah, big focus this time on their cameras. But they're doing sort of AI type stuff, which seems to be that's what you know the top players are doing, varying varying bits and pieces with AI, whether it's trying to improve your photos or you know in their case they've got Bixby, which is the voice assistant. Um, so yeah, I've quite enjoyed playing with the um, the S9 over the last few days. Um, I must say, I wish Samsung had sent me the S9 Plus because I like the the two times zoom that they've got in, in that one. 
Um, the screen size is interesting because last year um, they sent across an S8 and an S8 Plus, and I sent the the bigger what the S8 Plus back because I felt oh maybe that's a little bit too big um, for me. Um, but this year now there's that big that camera difference, and mm-hmm. the bigger models got the the two times zoom camera. Think, oh, actually, that's that's probably what I would be more comfortable with. And I quite like um, how Apple with the iPhone 10 being a, a smaller phone than their their iPhone 8 Plus has that type two times zoom in it. And I think that will probably become a pretty standard thing in the not too distant future. Yeah, you know, across phones, probably at more price points. Uh, but you know, for now, obviously, there's just a very small number of phones that that have that. But that was always for me sort of the Achilles heel of of smartphones is no no zoom lens at all. So it's nice to see the two time zoom becoming um, you know not quite commonplace, but it's certainly there in, a, in you know on both the Android and the the Apple sort of side of things now. I think it's great because where I've been disappointed with um, smartphone cameras in the past is when you're at concerts, you know, and you want to zoom in and take a photo. It <laughs> yeah. uh, never quite um, comes out with the, the, the really good resolution that you, that you want. And um, and so it's great to see the evolution from Samsung on on that. And um, and like you say, the iPhones kind of made progress already. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's that's out this week. Um, the other thing I had. Um, a brand that I've seen in the warehouse um, and other retailers, 36T, have been in touch and um, they have a whole bunch of sort of accessories now for smartphones and they're at the sort of at the more price conscious sort of end of the market. So um, yesterday I got their little uh, Bluetooth earbuds, which are uh, certainly not, not the same as... Um, as the the Apple um, you know product, but somewhat similar in terms of they've got a little charging case, and and in, in fact, in some ways, the them being a sort of a dark grey colour, um, they're not they don't jump out quite as much as the uh, the white Apple um, AirPods. Um, quite good, but their battery life. Uh, it's around three three hours, so not a, not as long as some of the other ones, um, but a little bit more sort of affordable. I think about one hundred fifty dollars here in New Zealand. Um, the other product I like uh, that they flicked across is uh, uh, their fast wireless charger, and I'm a, always been a big fan of wireless charging on anything that has it. So now that that you know, I mean, Samsung have done that for a number of years. Apple are in that camp now as well. Um, you can never have enough wireless chargers, I say. So, um, especially if you've seen how many phones usually on my desk. Um, so, um, yeah. So I was quite pleased to get that. I did a little bit of a test between um, the three sixty one. I've got uh, an old Nokia one, and uh, I've got a Samsung one there, and. Um, the this one from 360 was the fastest of all, but there's not a dramatic a dramatic difference um, between the fast charge models. It wasn't a whole lot different. Um, yeah, you know, it was maybe five or ten percent faster than the than the Samsung one I was trying. And Samsung have probably got a newer model now that's yeah you know, just as quick, but. Um, 
Yeah. I'm quite, a big fan. I nice. think you need them everywhere just so you could just, you know. We need them built know. into all our furniture, right? Well, yeah. it's in my car. You know. My new car, one of the key selling points was that you just throw your phone in there and it's charging up. It's fantastic. That's worth an extra uh, $10,000 right there, surely. That's, that's the new cup holder. It's the, <laughs> yeah, that's right. the phone charger. So like, loving holding. that feature. Yeah. Um, so, you know, all, all, these, all these new, um, you know, innovations that, you know, slowly become, you know, more and more mainstream. So I think wireless charge has been around for about 10 years, but it's only, uh, you know, you could you could say the, the, the last sort of 12 months where it's really started to uh, started to take off. So. And it's great to see the warehouse bringing that to the masses. It's really cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that brand has some other things. I um, got one of their um, uh, little action cam things, quite low cost, just to have a, have a play around with. And Look, I don't think that that the and they've got um, cases there, so they've already got cases for the S nine and the S nine plus, uh, you know, ahead of launch of those products into the into the market. So they've moved quite quickly. But I I imagine a lot of their products are just you know whatever's being uh, developed, um, you know, by manufacturers in in China, and then they get different people's sort of branding on them. I don't know how unique they're. Uh, you know their products are, but that's how mm-hmm. you get them in New Zealand under under that brand. And uh, yeah. you know, I think uh, at least yeah, some of the items I looked at had a had a sort of standard two year warranty. Um, so yeah, it's cool. um, kind of useful. So yeah, very useful. Um, I think. So I've already charged a, an iPhone and a and a Samsung on the uh, that particular one. Um, and hence why mostly if I've spent my day near the office or a lot of, or a reasonable amount of time in the office in the day, yeah, you know, my phone is usually on, you know, very close to a hundred percent charge. Yeah. Um, because of that. And I mean, you have the same in grid with, uh, you know, you got that in the car when you're driving around. That's uh, so a really handy feature. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. that's good. Um, all right. So what else were we going to chat about? Elon Musk shared a new uh, video over the last uh, few days, and uh, look, you know, last year we were, we were talking a lot about um, his new boring company, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, the idea of drilling drilling these uh, you know tunnels under the streets of Los Angeles and 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 other places, and able to move cars around really quick. Well, he seems to have sort of pivoted on on that plan, and uh, you know his his latest video and and, and comments are, are talking about well, yeah, we will you know bore these tunnels under the under the roads and so on, so there's no you know dramas with with traffic and vehicles will go on sleds at, at high speed. Uh, but the pivot is instead of it being focused on private cars. Is a, be much more focused on on public transport type uh, things that uh, yeah make much more efficient use. So you know buses and those sorts of things of varying sizes that can uh, you know go underground and 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 get you from somewhere in LA to uh, LAX at uh, at record time, along with a bunch of other people that are um, that are in the vehicle. Yeah. So I think that's a, a great innovation for. Um for moving mass population. Uh, mm. I think in, in New Zealand here we've got uh, a reasonably good um, sort of population that like to have extracurricular activities and so that's when I think that you, you start, unless your town's planned around around those hubs, it's um, a little bit more challenging because, you, you know, once you go to work or you, and you need to pick up the kids and take them to sport or, you know, whatever it might be, that's, mm. it's a little bit less free to just follow those rings. But when you're in large cities with mass-scale transport issues, you can totally see how... Um, 
how that would be really applicable, I think, mm. um, in that particular area. It goes against the grain of the gas-guzzling gas uh, LA citizen, though. But, yeah. um, but, <laughs> but I think, no, I think there'd be uh, some good innovation. There are challenges when you dig down, though, and into the into the tunnels. But obviously, with the boring company, who's going to sort that out? Um, I think that one area where I would critique is that, um, you yeah, know, from a transport perspective, you know, we've got private vehicles and public infrastructure, and those private vehicles, you know, they weigh about two ton to carry a, a hundred kilo person or less, and so if you could potentially, um, you know, design smaller pods or less, um, you know, it doesn't have to look like a car, but given that's our frame of reference, everything does, you could actually uh, be a lot more sustainable in transport if you reduce the um, level of materials that went into transporting a, a you know a single person in their in their luggage. Um, there could be some good innovation there as well. So I'd love to see I'd love to see that go not only to the public transport piece, but also some individual transport pieces being on that as well. Yeah, that are smaller and lighter and, yeah, and so yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, it's certainly an area that seems to be getting much more attention than it has for for a long time. Um, yeah, I'm I'm a little bit curious around what he's talking about because you know we already have subway systems and things like that around the world so you know how how these different you know mechanisms would would fit together and what the different use cases are um but look if he's going to you know pour a few billion into it and um and so on he can afford to and look if it works out well then yeah it will obviously um spread you would imagine yeah. so well, everyone loves the high speed you know trains when you get to Shanghai and yeah, yeah, yeah exactly so, um, it's moving totally speed yeah, underground yeah yeah, yeah. So, maybe it frees up that top level to work <laughs> yeah to work on those those individualist activities that the rest of us are running around doing after after work yeah um now Nicole I'm keen to hear from you a little bit more about about Rianne's um I guess, you know, the the name Rianne's has come up mm-hmm. on the New Zealand Tech Podcast, you know, a few times before over the years. And then uh, we met recently on uh, a on tour. On the Responder. On the Responder, yeah. the cable-laying uh, ship that's running the uh, the fibre optic uh, cables for the new uh, Hawaii uh, cable system, yeah. uh, which just gives, you know, more mm-hmm. capacity and, an, you know, another connection between New Zealand, the US and, and Australia. Oh, yeah. Another way of, you know, connecting us up to the outside world and um, yeah, you signed a, um, uh, well tell us yeah, what, what t- you tell signed what, why so, was I on that boat yeah, <laughs> yeah so r- r- run us through that and, and why uh, Rianne's needs you know these big fat uh, pipes, pipes to connect, to, to connect up, us to the um, rest of the world yeah connect things up yeah well we've um, one, of, one of the key key parts of our mission as an organisation is to ensure that that collaboration around that that research that is increasingly big data driven um, whether that's the astronomers or um, anyone working with any type of genome um, you know that the data that's been generated in these fields now is growing and how um, big are sort of some of the the scales of of data I remember somebody telling me the other day just around you know how much data you know, certain 3D scanning type um, devices of medical use yeah. sort of generate. And, and the, the numbers were quite astronomical. And, yeah. you know, we think, oh, you know, we've got gigabit UFB but to yeah. our home. You Surely know, how that, can anyone that need any more than that now. and so on? But um, yeah. we obviously do, right? Yeah, oh, we absolutely do. So we're, we had a really good example um, a month or so ago of a, a medical researcher down, based down at um, 
the Otago Medical School and she was working on a genomics project and she had this um, medical data that she needed to pull down from Barcelona. There's a um, European Genome Phenome Archive based there and um, the data set that she was trying to access was a 30 terabyte file and it was critical for the next phase of her uh, research project. So she'd, she'd started this transfer and it was, you know, probably by our standards at home, going great guns, but by our standards at, at Rands, it was sort of dribbling along. Um, and we, she'd, she'd heard us talk at uh, one of the conferences that they hold, and, and we said, you know, our mission is to help you move your data. Uh, so she gave us a call, and we, we had a look, and um, we'd worked out that if she'd, she'd stayed doing what she was doing, it was going to take her about eight months to get this 30 terabytes to her to her desktop uh, so we moved a few things around for her made sure her um, storage infrastructure was capable of, of moving this stuff fast connected that directly to our high-speed network and she, you just saw the transformation that um, and the performance so from you know over six months to you know 48 hours she had that data on her desktop so anything from you know 30 terabytes up to hundreds of terabytes to even people dealing with smaller files but needing them, you know, in real time, you know, where latency becomes a real, real challenge. So, mm. you know, it does, it does move that whole spectrum. But like you said, like medical imaging is just, it's, it's growing and people are sending now the scan that they might take of, of you to people on the other side of the world to actually eyeball it and do the diagnostics and, and then get you your results. So mm. there's a lot of data moving around. And even when you start talking about, you know, personalized medicine and the impact of, what happens when you're able to scan your own genome and your doctor is able to tell you a personalised treatment plan based on the fact that you've got these traits versus the traits that you, you might have in yours. So the, the data that's coming is, is going to be huge and the data that's here in research looking at those fields which we'll only start to, to see in maybe five years' time, you know, they're dealing with that data now. Mm. So... That is why I was on the responder, <laughs> linking that back to your question about Hawaii, because you know part of what we do is making sure you can ship that data around. Mm. Uh, so we've always been really focused on good quality international connectivity, um, and we've always uh, we've been really well served by the Southern Cross and our partnerships with them and our Australian equivalent. So there's a research network company like ours all around the world. Um, but Hawaii offers not only for our researchers dedicated capacity for them rather than sharing it with with our Australian counterparts, uh, but the you know the second Trans-Pacific cable for New Zealand. So this is the second attempt that we Reans and and using um, a. Uh, contribution from government have made at trying to get a second cable, Trans-Pacific cable up and running. Uh, we were anchor tenants way back when on the Pacific Fibre cable that was done by um, put together by Sam Morgan and his, and his um, counterparts. And yeah, yeah, all very involved. familiar yeah, names yeah. to the listeners of this yeah. podcast, I'm sure, <laughs> and to general householders. Um, and, you know, that was a, that was a um, you know, a re one of the first real big pushes to try and get this off the ground. And mm. submarine cables are, you know, incredibly tricky to get the financing for, especially with a population base like New Zealand. Scale is a big problem for us here. 
Uh, and so when, when that didn't quite come to fruition, we took a step back and, and waited because we thought there won't be, there'll be someone that comes along soon. And Hawaii um, came along with a slightly different design that sort of dropped that overall cost. Uh, they were able actually to be successful in funding that project. So that ship, you know, we've been involved with them f- since around, I think, 2014. So to be in 2018 and actually have that cable now, you know, it's leave, left Mungify heads. It's, it's, they've done the Sydney build. They've come across from the US and they're at the mid the moment in the middle of the Pacific Ocean jointing this cable together on the back of a boat and you know we're expecting to be able to move to that um, sort of end of June so you know New Zealand won't won't have the tyranny of distance you know that's the that's the big goal. It's exciting. Yeah yeah well it's it's nice nice that we'll have that extra uh, you know connectivity so I think that that's really uh, really pleasing. And oh, one one thing that I I really thought for um, for those that are a bit more sort of geeky techy uh, amongst our audience, which is um, certainly a, a, a few, um, they might enjoy what I found on your website. And I know you've been doing this for uh, yeah for a number of years, yeah. um, but it was just kind of fun to have a, a play with is um, what you call your weather map. Yes. maybe you can um, de- describe what that is. Our weather map that has nothing to do with the weather. <laughs> We've got um, on rians.co.nz we um, we have our uh, very publicly available, you can go and click on it, uh, network map uh, that shows where our national footprint is. And if you can click on the nodes and you can see in real time how much traffic is flowing around um, the network, you can even even see which institutions are connected to us. Um, and you can see, you know, their last year's traffic, their last month's traffic the last day and the last hour so you know you can see in real time what our backbone is doing if it goes gray you can see you know that we're dealing with some sort of um issue so there's a um it's been one of the really successful things i think that we've done um and we've like you said we've done that almost from day dot back in 2006 when we first started uh because we've, as a crown company, serving the serving the range of universities and research institutes, mm. we do. We don't have any reason to hide it. We can be really There's public no sort about of commercial this, aspects. Yeah, this are, is the size yeah, of our backbone. This is this is the the traffic profile um, we see, and these are these are the people that that mm. use it. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I was just you know look, looking at it before, and I've just jumped in there again. And for mm. anyone who's in front of a computer wants to have a look, weathermap.reans.co.nz, reans r e a n nz uh, nz and uh, yeah I was just hovering over some of the points and you know hovered over um, the um, Los Angeles to uh, Takapuna connection and you can sort of see how much data going uh, you know going in each direction mm-hmm. um, what was the other bit I hovered over was um, Auckland uh, to Mount Albert which is my suburb mm-hmm. and there's a um, research location there that's, yeah. that's um, you know uh, a, a, a member and uh, I saw that they um, they were hitting the uh, ten gigabits per second uh, and and peaking out earlier on the day. I'm not quite sure. What, no, I can't see what time of day that is without drilling in a, a, a little bit mm. further. But you you can see that you know actually look at at times your ten megabit 
10 gigabits network is, is yeah. just fine, but there, there's other times where uh, it's, it's, you, you'd actually like it to be, um, you like it to be faster. So, yeah, um, exactly. yeah, it's really cool to get that visibility, actually see what, see, see what's, what's going, going on. on. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the differences for dealing with researchers who are trying to move, uh, larger files, you know, is that we, we are a really peaky network most of the time. So we've got to manage that capacity, um, in a way that leaves a lot of room for them uh, to send that file between A and B when they want to, when they want to, and need need to send it. Um, so we we get the the nice smooth curves of everyday you know um, enterprise traffic, but we get the bursts on top of that that are um, researchers doing their thing, and and that's a that's a really exciting exciting part about um, what we do seeing those things um, move through the network. Mm. So, um, how does one become a member? I'm just thinking <laughs> we do a little bit of research around here. I could, you know, do, yeah. do with one of your ten gigabits uh, connections. Yeah, well, well we, we are um, we're very selectable about um, <laughs> who who joins our very exclusive community. Um, but we're, you know, we're handshake. Yeah, that's right. That's right. We can talk about that later. Uh, we'll um, talk about this offline. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we're, you know, we're focused on the research community, the education community, and we've got a mandate around serving the innovation community as well. So um, there are opportunities for um, especially um, growing organisations who are researching, they're doing a lot of R&D, mm. um, who are either you know, collaborating with other members or just have a need themselves. Mm. Um, you know, th- those kind of conversations we're totally open, open to um, having because our goal is to drive the New Zealand economy through, through supporting research and that includes research and development because I think innovation's a key uh, for New Zealand going forward. That's great. Well, you you might get an email or, <laughs> yeah. or, or two there from uh, from a, a listener. Yeah, my engagement team is going to um, steer me down when I get back to the office. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, Ingrid, the um, the the reason that you were suggested to come on the on the show, and of course, it's been great having having you on here. Um, it was sort of triggered by the Women in Tech uh, report that MYOB put out um, last week. So I was just you know keen to uh, to hear from you ab- about that, and um, you know it's quite interesting sort of reading through uh, some of the numbers and and you know I guess having having something that that's put together. And you know, talking about the the imbalance that we've had in the you know in the in the tech field uh, for a long time, it's been very you know male dominated um, space, and and you know many many re- regards. Um, but yeah, all sorts of stats and figures and, and bits and pieces that were uh, were in that report. And I'm kind of curious what your perspectives are on on um, you know how important it is that there be more uh, more of a you know a balance in um, in the tech world. Um, yeah, what, yeah are, so, what are your thoughts? Because um, I mean, you've I'm been you've been working yeah. in this space for a couple um, of decades, yeah. you know, for 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 a long time, and so you know, yeah. you, you must have seen uh, all manner of sort of uh, positives and 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 negatives, of, you know. I think, about I think about just to things. start for and for the listeners, start a macro context. Uh, Tech, the tech industry is the fastest growing um, industry in New Zealand. It produces sort of eight percent of the GDP, and nine percent of exports come from the tech industry. And there's about twenty five thousand businesses, uh, twenty eight thousand, sorry, and then uh, about eleven thousand are actually just in ICT alone. So it shows you it covers off many different sectors other than just ICT. 
But when you look at the numbers around um, you know, gender representation, and that only 23% of the jobs in that particular industry are filled by women. And from my experience, they tend to be skewed to potentially things like you know, being a business analyst or a project manager, but, not, but less representative in the, in the sort of core coding um, disciplines. But uh, when you compare that against the national average where for, you know, for every 100 males working, there's 85 women, that's basically the tech industry has half the representation of of uh, what's going on in, um, uh, across the, the other sectors. And what we do know is that business performance is enhanced when you've got really good diversity uh, and really good um, inclusion. Uh, um, and that's certainly at a governance and a leadership layer. There's lots of stats around that. But when you, fly, when you apply it to, um, to the tech industry, what's really interesting is you think about sort of agile development and you're now <coughs> trying to have autonomous teams self-designing um, and producing more valuable output for clients and customers in a, in a short space of time. It's really interesting to think about how if you don't have diversity and representation in those teams, then how the, um, the outputs and the productivity can be skewed. Um, and so I think as a, tech, as a tech sector, we've got a, a long way to go to help with inclusion. And we, we do a number of things at, um, yeah, at NYB to help this. But the first thing that we do from an education perspective is ensure that all of our leaders go through unconscious bias training. Um, and so whether they be male or female, they and it's not just a one-day or a half-day session, it's over a period of time where they can really reflect on their own biases and, and work out how they are creating contexts and teams that either include or exclude. And it's not just gender, it can be mm. um, introverted thinkers, like our workplace design is open plan and they don't have a representation. But confronting that unconscious bias is a really important point. Um, but the other thing that we need to do is, uh, uh, across the sectors is um, ensure that we appeal to younger people. And what was quite frightening in that report was that only 3% of girls mm-hmm. aged 15 um, really wanted to go and join the tech sector. That's mm. quite, you know, that's... Yeah, and, that, that, and that's <coughs> a big part of where, where the challenge is. And, um, you know, I, I look at it from, you know, my perspective of, you know, running a business and the, the people that we get that apply for roles... Uh, and I mean, it, you know, definitely in, in the tech roles, it's you know very heavily, uh, you know, skewed to to males. And so, um, you know, we, it's you know it's fair to say over the years that that you know the there's been uh, you know our our technical staff have been very dominated um, by men. That's you know absolutely the case. Yeah, and so um, we're making policies yeah. like at work. We um, I'm really pleased that particularly in our development team, you know, forty percent of our new grad intakes uh, are women and so you've got to be conscious of it and um and then and get reporting on it and and equally around gender pay we have very clear reporting about different roles and and not only representation but also uh you know gender pay but you've got to um have that visibility to start making Mm -hmm. that and i think that Mm -hmm. what i've seen is that um they can help make better quality products faster um, if you have a, a diverse and inclusive kind of space and culture, um, which is really good. The other thing we do is we, you know, we do things like hack days where everyone from any part of the business can come in, and we also get students in because we want students to actually really see and get exposed to what it's like in a tech company. But mm. they can hack and actually collectively solve on problems, and um, and you play to the strengths of different people because the problems, you know, people. Um, both um, genders see different problems as in, in different mm. perspectives, and so if you can be really inclusive in the teams and what you're solving on, it can make a, a you know a real a real difference. But um, but it is a big problem for us, I think, in the tech sector. When I um, I've presented at a lot of women and 
and technology mm-hmm. conferences and like university graduates were less than um uh, you know, sort of 17%, I think, at the time when I looked at it. And what we do know is that um, in ICT, men are more, like, it's two times more likely to study ICT, but in engineering, it's five times more likely to be men. Mm. And what's really, when I talk to, to a woman, and I get, we have a lot of people through the office, and, um, you know, there's, there's three reasons why I think a career in tech is great. But the first one is the pay. You know, the average wage in, um, in anywhere else is sort of 56.5K and in the tech industry it's 95K. So you instantly get set up in a, in a better sense. That's a, that's a, the reward's good. The second one is, um, is that you're always working on complex problems and it's always changing an environment. Uh, and so you're never, you know, not, st- not, not stimulated uh, you know, intellectually. It's not, it's not a boring place to it's work, isn't it? When you place. work in technology, it's, yeah, it's, it's always going to be changing. There's always new challenges. And I mean, uh, that's, that's certainly something I've I've always in, enjoyed. So and well. the ability to go from I mean, I've been fortunate that I've gone from yeah run sales and marketing and then into strategy roles and then into change management and running IT and then back to sales and marketing. The diversity of where you can go on a career path is is quite phenomenal. Mm. Um, but the big thing that we need to do is we, yeah work with governments and education and um, and businesses to attract more women to the industry because if, if we don't get that if you've only got half the population and twenty eight percent of businesses say that they you know got a shortage of skills. Um, mm. In the IT industry, mm. and so if we in the tech industry, and so if we can actually solve that by bringing more and attracting more women, I think it will make a big difference for us. Mm. Mm. What do you What do you think of the the um, the challenges that sort of you know hold back there being um, you know this improving other than you know getting that interest at a at a younger age. Anything else that sort of? Um... Well, I think I think that there's you know, in a few key areas. The first one is obviously the you know, education and promotion, like you say. People need to see role models um, and effectively and, and see promotion. I think that there's a philosophy I have, which is people don't necessarily need mentors; they need sponsors. You need to really yeah. support and sponsor <laughs> women into prom- you know, and promote them through the leadership pathways. And um, and so I think having a sponsor is really really important, or you sponsoring people if you're in a, in a leadership position. Um, you need, I think you need to get some valid stats and reporting. It's quite mind-blowing for some people when they first get their gender, um, both representation or pay parity reports. They go, wow, how did that happen? You know, um, And so having that sort of feedback. But I think it's about showing role models, having visibility, supporting them, um, and, and promoting it to um, as an attractive industry. The kind of stereotypes of the, uh, the little geek the Revenge of the Nerds, mm-hmm. given my age, I don't relate to that, but there's a <laughs> bunch of people that, <laughs> that wouldn't know what those, that they, um, they don't, uh, that doesn't have a, a, a kind of sexy perception amongst um, those mm. that are graduating. So, mm. yeah, dealing with those are the key issues. Yeah. yeah. And I think there are, there are probably, like, there are some small things that organisations can do within their own organisations and as they are recruiting to, uh, to try and make sure they're getting some some greater balance. I mean, I, I get asked quite a lot to talk about what's the what's the business case for, you know, for um, diversity um, in the workplace. And I, I said um, someone the other day that kills me that we're still we're still thinking that we need to build a business case around it. Um, but you know, once once you've once you've got there, um, one of the things that you know I've from my position now as a female CEO in a, in a technical organisation that I've had the absolute privilege of being able to push forward um, are some small things that we can do to try and really push diversity in our organisation. So um, I'm a big believer that you know you can 
to get the absolute best candidate for the job, you need to have the widest and best pool of applicants um, applying for it. So we did um, we did two things uh, when I was um, recruiting for my leadership team. Uh, one of them was when the recruiter was coming to us saying, well, we've had this many applications for, say, uh, um, the one that comes to mind particularly was our um, chief operating officer role, so the person responsible for leading the technical side of um, our technical teams. You know, we'd had um, one female and 59 men apply. And I said to them at that time, well... We, we, you know, that's not it. That's not good enough. You know, my, I'm paying you as a recruiter to find me a really good mix of candidates. So we specifically asked them to go out and shoulder tap. And the, um, they went out and did that and worked their networks. And what I did was use the channels that I'm on. So, you know, LinkedIn and um, Twitter and those sorts of things to say, well, we're applying, we're, we're recruiting for this job. You know, it's a senior job in a technical organization. You'll be leading technical people. <clears throat> but I invite women to apply for it. You know, there are people that say that, you know, where we, uh, women are reluctant to put their hands up for things, um, and so they need to be invited to the dance. Um, so, so we did that, and um, I know for a fact that those strategies worked for us because the person we ended up hiring into that role was one of those people that was shoulder-tapped. She wasn't in the pool of candidates that I had in front of me if I hadn't asked asked that question. So that's just one small thing, you know, push your recruiters or your internal recruiters a little bit harder mm. um, in terms of making sure you've got the breadth of applicants in front of you. And when you're confronted with um, particular recruitment decisions like that, taking the time to make sure you've got the balance of, mm. um, of representation is, is important and, and and I do know that there are particular leadership positions we've had at NYB where um, we have had to pass on a number of very qualified candidates to make sure you get the overall composition of leadership team you want. Once, so yeah. it comes down to having that um, that level of um, uh, you know, discipline, I guess, and commitment yeah. to, to it. Mm-hmm. But the, the benefits can be the improved business performance. Yeah, well, your, your report sort of highlights that. And I think, you know, although... Um, yeah, there's that thought, well, you know, we shouldn't have to, you know, justify this. It's, you know, um, it's just how, how it should be. But actually, when you, you do go back to that, the report sort of highlights the improved, uh, you know, p- performance um, for organisations mm-hmm. that actually do do bring a, you know, a balance from a diversity yeah, we've got, perspective. we've got good, good stats from, a, you know, um, in, in the industry from a you know, board and leadership perspective where their returns um, – the returns that they make on um, return on equity and, and those things are much better mm. when you have a diversity representation in your leadership team. Mm. Uh, and so if you think about the productivity and the unit of a development team and how effective they are at um, producing code, yes, applying those same principles mean that you can get a better quality output, output. down at that level too, which is at the core and heart of a, a tech com- company. Yeah, I can ima- I can Im- imagine maybe there's some people with sort of smaller teams that it's sort of you know a bunch of blokes have always worked with 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 blokes. Have either of you had you know situations like that where you know you've had a team that's sort of gone gone through a change and you know en- ended up with a, with a mix that wasn't there uh, before. Uh, anything you can sort of you know share on that? I mean, within my tech team here, it has been mostly guys. We've had uh, you know women in the team as well, um, but sometimes we find they get very sought after. And then you know we, we had one who was you know great, and it was you know so good. And then you know previous employer you know who she's oh no, I didn't like working there because of this and that. And 
they just kept chasing her and offering higher and higher and higher. And, you know, within 12 months of her having joined the team, I think, you know, she was telling me, look, to keep me, you're going to have to double my salary or, so, you know, something yeah, down that sort I, of track. I don't, and, I don't know those stories, but I have observed um, the first thing that happens when you bring a woman to the team is that the, um, the, the male starts sort of talking better and it's this kind of awkwardness around the blokey jokes they used to make and then and then how do you be appropriate so but once you get through that um sort of yeah storming phase and getting into a bit of norming what you do find is that um or what i've observed is that and across a number of different teams is that um there's a level of sort of common sense and discipline and rigor that and focus that, that gets put to it and there's also a focus on um the emotional engagement and looking at how the team actually works and it functions and then the last thing is a, a real empathy for the client and what you're actually mm-hmm. trying to produce for the client and if your client, for us, you know, in terms of um, uh, bookkeeping, accounting, and, and payroll, we um, we have a number of female clients, and so producing software for them and how they think about it is uh, is um, you know incredibly important that you have that just that lens on it when you actually are, are doing co- co- coding for for that. So um, that's how I've I've seen it sort of progress that way. I haven't seen the the if you want to keep me, it's going to double your salary, but. Um, but I have seen teams evolve through an evolution mm. and you start to have people um, more collaborative, um, less alpha male dynamics playing. And, you know, this is <coughs> my personal mm. observations that I've seen mm. happen over mm. time. Mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, And I think you, you can start to create some shared experiences in that team that are based on different things than perhaps some of the, the cultural aspects have been um, before. And I think that bonds your team closer together. I think some people assume that having diversity in the team creates a team of individuals that will, you know, that actually starts to pull that that team bonding culture apart. But we have seen with with increased diversity, whether that's gender or um, ethnicity, um, that actually pulls us closer mm. together over time once you've got over the they, they that bond initial over, phase. They bond <laughs> on the ethnic space they bond over lots of different lunches yeah, um, and, exactly. and different flavors of it there is a case though that just having one in a team is it doesn't make a difference you know and you need to have three the power mm. of having three in a team where they feel supported um uh and uh helps actually really shift that cultural shift yeah. so um in many in many cases i've been in teams where well we need to get the uh uh, the female representative, and they bring on one, but then they don't feel they don't feel empowered mm. to actually speak out against yeah. things that they might have been uncomfortable. Yeah. So you've got to, mm. uh, you know, put a commitment to to ensuring that you're including in different roles though, mm. that representation. Yeah, I mm. think inclusion's the key word there. There's, there's you can strive for diversity, but then the next step after that is you've got to strive for the inclusion of those people and actually inviting them to the room is one thing, but um, making sure you're having that conversation. Is, is the next part involving them in that conversation getting the team to dance together yeah, yeah, there, you, yeah there you go nice <laughs> oh well thank you well I mean it's the first time we've really you know dived in you know to, to you know in any level of depth and we've had mm. these conversations from time to time but that's been uh, it's been really really interesting so thanks for having us on uh, thank yeah. you both for, um, for coming on um, now Nicole what's the best way for people to, to get in touch with you and to get in touch with Rianne's you're on um, Twitter we're on Twitter I'm on LinkedIn you know or, or pretty much any any channel will will find me eventually so yeah just reach out and our contact details for Rianne's are on our website so I'll wait for my engagement team to kick me later maybe <laughs> Great. Well, we'll put those. Um, we'll put those details up on the uh, New Zealand Tech Podcast site yeah. as well. Thank you, Paul. Um, and Ingrid. Um, yeah, my Twitter handle at, at um, Miss NZ ICT. Uh, cool. Yes, and uh, and then uh, on LinkedIn and uh, you know at myb.com. 
That's great. Excellent. Well, cool. thanks everybody for uh, for listening in again this week. We'll be back again uh, next week. Uh, you can reach me uh, via my website at paulspain.com um, and uh, and across all of those social media platforms. Uh, if you're connecting with me on LinkedIn, always nice to have a, a little note letting me know that you're a, a podcast listener. Um, and thank you to uh, those that have been uh, connecting through LinkedIn recently. Some really uh, nice, encouraging messages, uh, including one around the New Zealand Business Podcast. Um, some really good feedback there. Uh, and on that front, uh, in the next few days, you will start seeing more regular episodes of the New Zealand Business Podcast. So uh, we've got some pretty interesting uh, interviews coming up there, uh, including with uh, Darren Linton, who's the CEO at uh, Yellow, uh, another firm that's had impact of disruption, uh, but are working really hard uh, on an innovation front. And uh, yeah, quite an interesting story there from uh, from Darren. So thanks everyone. We'll catch you again next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT.